0: Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market. For more information, visit FairwayMarket.com. It's Chef Story. My name is Dorothy Can Hamilton from the International Culinary Center. But today we're here with Chef Story at Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we're here every Wednesday at noon. And what do we do at Chef Story? We interview chefs. And today we have a blockbuster chef with us, Emily Lucchetti. Um, for those of you who maybe are East Coast locked you might not know that she 's the executive pastry chef at both Farallon and Water Bar in San Francisco to extremely hot and wonderful restaurants, but it 's going to take me a minute or two because I have to tell you everything this woman has has accomplished first of all, the biggie. she was chosen in two thousand and four as the james beard foundation 's pastry chef of the Year. She beat out everybody. She's in the who's who of food and beverage in America. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle named her one of the 20 visionary chefs in the Bay Area. She received the American Culinary Pioneer Award. She's in Food Art's Silver Spoon Awards. And she got from the Women's Chefs and Restaurateurs, a great National Women's Chef Association, the Golden Whisk Award. And I I can go on and on. We're not going to do that. She has five books. The latest one is Fearless Baker. Uh, When we walked into uh, Roberta's here, the pastry chef, Melissa said, oh, my God, I have your books. I love you. (laughs) And that's the way a lot of pastry chefs feel. Uh, And so I'm just absolutely thrilled. Emily, um, we're old friends, and you are just inspirational, and welcome.
1: Thank you. It's so great to be here. This is like a little mecca oasis in Brooklyn. <laughs> I,
0: I'm ashamed I haven't been here before, but I, I haven't even left and I can't wait to come back. You know, it, it gets me a feel, uh, sort of like San Francisco in the mission area where people have, you know, outdoor spaces and things like it that. It does.
1: I think I'm going to open a little pastry shop with a radio thing in the back.
0: <laughs> okay. Right. We love it. We love it. So, you know what I'd like to ask people, like who are you? Where did you come from? What were you like with a, as a kid? Were you making, you know, wedding cakes at five? Where where did you grow up? And tell me about your pastry life. When did you start baking?
1: You know, well, it's, I actually grew up on the East Coast of the United States in Corning, New York, near Cornell and Ithaca. Oh, And so, you know, I'm an East Coast girl. And I think the first time I came to New York, I was 13. And I just felt my whole life had changed. But you know, in New York, I had a Typical suburban, you know, upbringing It was a small town, it really wasn't the suburbs But I made box brownies I made box, you know, K- Duncan Hines cake mix My mom made, you know, Toll House cookies uh, fresh And my parents always liked to cook But the pastry end was kind of just something that was not, you know I, I was a really picky eater I like fish sticks and stuff like that So <laughs> it was, uh, I really wasn't Even though I was surrounded by it My early memories weren't of, you know Dining on bittersweet chocolate Or anything like that but um, it was one of those things that the older I got, and just being around it, I really appreciated, you know, fine food, and even like for uh, holidays and desserts, my parents would always make something different. Like we would always have chocolate a chocolate dessert on Thanksgiving, and it never even dawned on me that people had pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. Really?
0: You never had pumpkin never. pie on my Thanksgiving. My
1: mother and father didn't like pumpkin pie, so we never had it. Did you have apple pie? No, we just usually a chocolate dessert. So chocolate. they were kind of like renegade doing what they wanted to do. And it it wasn't until I got married and I'm with my husband's family. I go, what's this pumpkin pie thing every year? <laughs> oh, <You> my, <know? laughs> my gosh. What did you eat at Christmas? Uh, just various things. It was never, you know, a standard a standard thing. I hope you had a wedding cake. I, actually, I didn't even have a wedding cake when I got married. <laughs> you <a> renegade. <laughs> I didn't even have a wedding cake. You didn't. No, because actually the place we got married, this jumping ahead a few years, but the place we got married was a club it was the world trade club in san francisco in the building that the ferry building is in now in mm-hmm. downtown san francisco and it was an international kind of business club and you they weren't supposed to have weddings there because they would just be overrun with weddings and my father-in-law was a member so we just had like a dinner dance thing on a friday afternoon so we just had a, a dessert buffet so
0: <clears throat> it's like the shoemaker without the yeah really. well.
1: but you know it was funny growing up though because my um you know, when I look back on it, my grandmother, uh, one of them loved to cook, and she, but she cooked more, you know, savory things. And my grandfather would clip little newspaper articles out of, you know, food and recipes and things. And she actually won, in 1964, the National Sunbeam Cooking Contest. And it was a recipe for um, blushing chicken, and it was chicken with cream and cranberry sauce. And they gave her a crown and a cape no. and all these Sunbeam appliances. So I got my picture in the paper when I was about seven, because I was at her house in this sunbeam person came over with you know the electric griddle the electric frying pan and all these different things cool
0: so do you still make that recipe
1: um actually (laughs) i haven't made it in a long time i gave it to my brother the other day because you look it's just cream and cranberry and chicken that's basically sounds like easy (laughs) it's really easy that would be a good thanksgiving actually you
0: have a blog don't you
1: i do i should actually put it up can you post it i'm
0: sure the hundreds of thousands if not millions of people out there um oh did I mention this is Heritage Radio yeah. dot, dot org? Um, it, the, uh They can go to the website and find it. But uh, So getting back to your childhood, so you were on the East Coast. You were making box cakes. Uh, yeah, box
1: cakes. stuff. My other grandmother really wasn't into cooking. She made great martinis, but I wasn't drinking them at that age. <laughs> she had a
0: cool family.
1: <laughs> and, um, and then when my dad was 50... He retired, he kind of, he had owned a family newspaper in Corning, New York, and my mom and he moved to Sanibel Island, Florida, and opened up, uh, he started a weekly newspaper down there with some other guys, but they wanted to do something together, and so they opened up a cookware shop. It was called The Unpressured Cooker, and this was about 19... 75. And it was before, you know, Macy's had their cellar in New York, but the Cuisinart had just come out. Carbon steel knives were big and it was just, the whole kind of cooking thing was just starting to kind of build and, you know, um, get unleashed in the United States. And so they ran that for about 15 years. And during college, I would work for them in the summer. And I would sell Calphalon pots, I would sell Cuisinarts and I really kind of developed my love for food even at that point, just, you know, working. Did you come
0: home after, you know, working and cook?
1: Um, Well, I did go to college down there so in the summers I would just go down and that would be my my summer job would, mm. would be working um, mm. there and you know and I just kind of love being around the whole food thing and they got Giuliano Buggiali would come down and teach classes really? and yeah so it was pretty it was, it was pretty cool and but it wasn't like fast paced enough for me so I said I think I don't want just the pots and pans end of it I want the food end of it so I moved to New York City after I got out of college and there was an and I was like most graduates with a degree in sociology, had no idea what I wanted to do, and I saw an ad in the New York Times that said, no typing required, (laughs) and it was a company near Wall Street looking for a kind of sous chef slash dishwasher to work in an executive dining room. And so I said to myself, well, I'll do this while I wait for, you know, something. So some you food. had
0: no professional food no, experience? No, no
1: professional food experience at that time. And you
0: became I, the sous chef? Well, it was the sous chef
1: slash bottle washer slash dishwasher. <laughs> and the, only, the, only, the other person in the kitchen was a woman, and she was going to law school. So she was kind of getting out of food. So, and we did small parties. It was like, you know, 10 or 15 people. for the top 10 um, executives in the company. So, so I take it was more, it
0: wasn't Goldman Sachs. <laughs> no, it was
1: actually, it was Jay Aaron and company that was bought out. <laughs> By um, Goldman Sachs oh later my God. on All right, And so it was like More like giving dinner parties Because um, mm-hmm. of the size and the volume And so I worked there for about a year and a half And I absolutely loved it and I said Well if you're going to be around food all the time You should get an education and you should Try to do it all the time and get paid for it So I went to the New York Restaurant School At the time, International Culinary Center Or FCI wasn't open yet it was, I was like a year ahead of my time Thank you <laughs> <laughs> because I was, I was a career changer. You know, it would have been um, would have been perfect. So I went to the New York Restaurant School, which is a, a six month uh, program. I'd gotten into the CIA, but I didn't want to go back to two years of school. I really just wanted to kind of get some base knowledge and then get out there and work. And then, and if this was all in culinary, it wasn't even in pastry. And then I went to France for a year and worked and just at what
0: propelled you to France?
1: What propelled me to France was. Just the food and the food culture Because I said it's like if you want to learn about food You have to go to the source You know it's like the source of the Nile It's the source you have to And that's what you know when people come When I came back people said did you get a lot of recipes Did you learn I said you know On the one hand I was young I was 23 I was so over my head but on the other hand What you walk away with one is a work ethic And two is a standard of quality And you just living there For a year just through your bones And your skin you pick up the food culture And it is just so important Part of every day's everyone's life And even if people don't know how to make A terrine of foie gras or they don't know How to make puff pastry they know what Good foie gras or good puff pastry tastes Like and that is um, I think one of the things that really was um, Instilled in me is just about the quality And the care of not just Product but technique and the craft of getting something from, you know, a bowl of lettuce or whatever into a dish.
0: How hard was it? So you went to uh, cooking school. You graduated from Mm -hmm. college. You went to cooking school, uh, and you worked... I
1: worked uh, for Jar Pango A great uh, two-star It was a
0: two, three-star New York Times chef
1: Right, he was in Paris And then he came (laughs) to New York And owned Aurora Restaurant for many years And now I think he was Then he moved to D.C. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I was actually one of the first women That had come in there And and, um, was staying for an extended period of time Most people Mm -hmm. went in there and stayed for You know, a couple weeks and did a brief stage But I stayed there for a year And um, it, How did you get
0: the job, like visa wise? Oh, actually, you I was on, I was on
1: a tourist. I was an illegal. I was on a, I was on a tourist visa, and I just <laughs> la- of after vacations yeah. run out. <laughs> after a few months, I would leave and then um, just come back. But the woman that I was working at the executive dining room knew him, and I oh. uh, wrote like. 10 french chefs and i should have saved the letter but Boku sent me a letter saying well yes that's fine but we don't allow women in our kitchen and oh. i you know it was, then you just like it's a rejection you just throw it out you know we'll, we'll get them. into that in the next section of <laughs> yeah. the show but, but it um but he you know he took me on i think at that point even he wanted to come to the united states and so mm. he was he really was trying to open up his ties and he knew lois the woman that i work for um pretty well and so he said sure you know send her you know.
0: Fabulous So you lived in Paris
1: I lived lived outside of Paris He gave me um, As you know I didn't get paid But he gave me a room That was like This tiny room Off of In this building That his uh, father Or his father-in-law owned And it was like so small. It was like the, the, sh- it was one of those, um, squat kind of porcelain toilets, you know, in <laughs> no! the bed. And so your shower was over the toilet. And it was just <laughs> like, there'd be nights, it'd be like, you know, with it, good, they were closed like on Saturday and Sunday, which was pretty, you know, rare for, um, restaurants then. But I just remember just going back to my room with my coffee mug and my wine, my five franc <laughs> bottle of wine, thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> it sounds so
0: romantic. Yeah, yeah. It's romantic
1: when you look back <laughs> on it, really. And the other side is what, you know what doesn't kill you what doesn't kill you makes you stronger so, so when
0: you came back to the states with all of this uh, experience under your belt yeah. or you know extraordinary experience under your belt uh, did you find that the doors of the kitchens in America opened to you because of it um, you know... It's and were you doing pastry or were you no, doing savory? No, this is all savory. This is oh, all okay. savory. okay. So are you regular? Yeah.
1: This cuisine. is all savory. And, well, I came back and um, I decided with my boyfriend at the time, who's now been my husband for 25 years, that we wanted to move to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of got a stopgap job in the meantime at the Silver Palette with Sheila Lukens and Julie Rosso. Oh. And I worked there for a year. And that was actually fun because it was the beginning of... They were the first gourmet takeout shop in Manhattan and people... You know, it's hard for them to think about the fact that you that those things, places just didn't exist. Mm. They didn't exist at all. Mm. And then when I moved out to San Francisco, it was about three months before Stars Restaurant was opening up with Jeremiah Tower, mm. and that I, the France thing definitely got my um, got my foot in the, in that door. You know, with and Jeremiah. it didn't matter that. When I got the job, I was you know opening oysters and making pizzas and
0: things like that. So you became the chef, the pastry chef there. But yeah. you were so you started as sta- a savory. I started chef a savory there? There? I didn't chef that. there
1: and worked on the line and became lunch chef. And then it was, and that
0: was your first American job after Paris.
1: Yeah, except for um, Silver Palette. Yeah, except and I'd actually worked in a couple of New York restaurants before I, after school before I went to. Um, to um, Paris very briefly, about a year. One was at Manhattan Market with David Liederman, and That was my first job after cooking mm-hmm. school, so I'm mm-hmm. sure, I, hopefully they don't remember me because <laughs> <laughs> when you're first out of school like that, you know nothing. And then I worked at a tiny, tiny place on 26th and 3rd called Caliban, and uh-huh. um, and that's actually where I was working, and this is a great story, and I told Andre Saltner this story a couple weeks ago. I was working there one night, and uh, Peter called up my boyfriend, and he said, Hey, I just got invited the last minute to go to Lutece for dinner. Can you come? And I said, It's 5 o'clock in the evening. I have to work the line tonight. I can't come to Lutece for dinner. And my boss heard me, and he said, What's that? And I explained it to him. He said, You're going to Lutece tonight. He said, You will learn more at Lutece eating than you will you know, cooking here on the line tonight. He said, I'll cover your sh- your station. Go. And within an hour, I was sitting at Lutece for dinner. And oh, my. this Oh, this was probably 1982. What a great chef. Oh, I know. Well, I know.
0: <clears throat> we're, we're going to take a break here, and we're going to come back and hear a lot more about yeah. your proposal. We haven't even
1: got to the pastry part. <laughs> no. <laughs> Was brought to you by Fairway Market. Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries, they cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information and be sure to check the new blog On Our Plate for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes.
0: Well, welcome back. This is HeritageRadioNetwork dot com, and you're listening to Chef Story with moi, Dorothy Can Hamilton, and my very special guest, pastry chef extraordinaire Emily Lucchetti. So, Emily, we we're just talking about an enlightened chef sending you to Lutes rather than working. Uh, And I I have to say I'm just thrilled because you've just joined the International Culinary Center as dean, and the fellow dean, Andre Soltner, you know, the master chef owner of Lutes, was uh, where you you, uh, went. You know, we spoke in the last 15 minutes about you getting a rejection letter from Paul Bocuse saying you couldn't work in his kitchen because you're a woman, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what what it was like back in those days, even in America, for women's chance in a kitchen, and yeah. how how has that evolved over the years? What's it like today? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, I think I was very fortunate to spend the bulk of my years of my career in San Francisco because I think in San Francisco there isn't the um, it's kind of much more. F- Free for all, and if you're if you're good, you can succeed. And they're just—it's a little bit more casual. It's a lot more casual, and you know, and working actually for Jeremiah as a woman, I never felt like I I wasn't getting my due either in San Francisco or um, working for Jeremiah. I mean, for him, it was always like if you're good, you're good. It doesn't matter, you know, what sex you are or anything. So I was really fortunate, and I think a lot of um, people in San Francisco feel the same way. And also, I know a lot of guys who actually prefer working for a woman and um, i think so i think that there's you know so many different ways that um, it people's realities are but i think in san francisco it really isn't that much you know of an issue and i've been really you know fortunate about that and but at the same time i think you know and the advice i've always given people cuz you and i were on the uh, board of women chefs and restaurant tours together that um, you know, and I talked to my friends through that, the women that are, that are my age and um, that have worked through it in other cities. They had real problems, and they weren't allowed to do a lot of different things. I said, And I think the one thing that was really fortunate about the whole explosion of American cooking was that it brought people, you know, the traditional you know, way in the United States was much more of a European method, and it was more of a male hierarchy. And when the whole um, women thing came, Uh, When the whole American thing came, I think it kind of opened it up and everybody started, um, you know, kind of. um, Are there a lot more
0: American women in the kitchen than you think in Europe?
1: Yes, I do. I do, and even I th- today, I think even even today. And I also think that you know it's interesting when we were part of women chefs and Tours in San Francisco. It's a really small community, and everybody knows everybody, so everybody helps uh, everyone. And that may be more of a female thing, but it's male and female alike. But but I remember coming to New York and knowing two or three pastry chefs or chefs in general that lived and worked within four blocks of each other in Manhattan and they didn't even know each other. And I came from San Francisco and hooked them up and linked them together. So oh. I think it's that there just isn't that um, that kind of camaraderie. It's all, everyone's kind of going to work. They're focused on, you know, their little niche mm. and they're not really kind of broadening out and, and being kind of um, supportive and, you know, um, and making it more of a community, really. Mm. So I don't want to belittle it and say it. That I don't think it existed Because I think it did But the good news in San Francisco Is yeah there were yellers And screamers in the kitchen And yes there were those people That you know Wouldn't promote you Because you're a woman But fortunately there were Other places to go You know I would say to people Listen if you're learning Something somewhere Stick with it If you know If the good outweighs the bad Stick with it The minute you walk in the door And the bad outweighs the good Go find another job
0: Well I I thought uh, We really arrived When I forget when women chefs and restaurateurs started, maybe in the late 90s, uh, early 2000. But anyway, about four years ago, I went to one of the organization's meetings and there were women there at the meeting saying, raising their hands saying, you know, I have all these guys that want to join. Why are we excluding them? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, wait a minute, this is all about empowering women to get ahead in the kitchen. And they said, you mean we couldn't get ahead? And I thought that That, has really right. So I don't don't think that prejudice is uh, there, maybe on an occasion basis, but the one thing I do notice at you know our school uh, is that in the pastry department eighty percent are women studying to be pastry chefs is it, why is there an inordinate amount of female pastry chefs as opposed savory.
1: Yeah, I think you know and there are and I see the resumes that come across my desk, I mean, there there are days where I just say I want to get a good male resume cuz I want to hire a guy cuz I'd rather be have a team of, you know, both men and women and but sometimes the, the 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 male resumes aren't just there. I think it really you know, I think it has to do with the um the skills that are required and the personality of the two jobs, you know the fact that i 've worked both culinary and pastry the one of the reasons I switched was I was losing my love for culinary i, I didn 't really? like working the line, I hated working the line Why? Um, i didn 't like the um, intensity of it i didn 't like the pressure of it what the most thing i didn 't like was I didn't like knowing in an evening if I was going to have a really busy, terrible night or a really slow night. Because the guy at the other end is calling you you down and saying, cook four chicken, four scallops, kind of as the orders go down. But you're cooking more a la minute and it's last minute, so you don't kind of have that control. Mm. And in pastry, you know, obviously you're plating desserts at night, but the bulk of your work is spaced out during the day. Um, And so you go in and you're making all your chocolate cakes and all your, you know, tarts or whatever. And there's a lot to do, but there's an even pace to it. And I don't, sometimes I think that that's maybe more of a female thing than Mm. than a male thing. This just has to do with the organization of the work and how people want to spend their time.
0: You know, we give a test called the predictive index, which kind of is a personality test. And we can say to people, you know, we think you'd be better on the line or better in the Uh pastry kitchen. And we find that people who skew to the pastry kitchen are architects. Medical Mm -hmm. people Incredibly precise people Who want control
1: Yeah And surgeons I mean you know I talk to so many home bakers That are surgeons The other thing Mm -hmm. too When I talk to home bakers They'll say well Or people that you know Do some baking at home And some cooking They'll say well I like to cook But I don't like to bake And I say well Do you like to follow instructions They said no I
0: don't follow instructions Well that's why You don't want to (laughs) bake Exactly Once you put that uh, It's not a little of this And a A little little of that that, Yeah So you uh, You and I met I think through women and mm-hmm. chefs and restaurateurs on the board. And you have always taken a leadership position. And recently, well, recently, in the last few days, it's been announced that you are the new chairman of the James Beard Foundation. That's So right. congratulations. Thank you. Thank and you. thank you for taking that on. Um, that's a huge organization, and uh, you are a major leader. If you had one thing to uh, leave a legacy in the Beard Foundation. Is there one thing that you think this industry needs and the foundation can help?
1: Yeah, I think the foundation is a, a really great foundation. It really brings the community of uh, chefs and cooks and uh, food authors and wine people all together. And um, I would like to turn it more into an organization, though, that doesn't just give awards out. And I know Susan Ungaro, who's the president, you know, the awards are fine, and it's fun that somebody gets pastry chef of the year. It's a real honor and et cetera, et cetera. But I'd like to make it an organization where people don't just think of it for that one thing every year and make it something that, you know, chefs and members are really excited to be a part of because it really influences their life and the way they do their jobs and the people that they they work with and make it much more... um, Make, make it a much more relevant thing And I think, you know, yes, it's great It's a, a, a fine dining type of um, organization But let's go beyond that Let's mm. go beyond that
0: mm. Well, you're such a mentor to so many people I know And um, can you share with us uh, One of the things we were talking about Is how pastry has evolved in the last 20 years yeah. uh, is, is it the same as when you were starting out? Or where is the profession today? And what do you have to know?
1: Yeah, well, you know, when I first started out in pastry, I actually had – I just decided that I wanted to go into the pastry department. I eyed it on the other side of the kitchen at Stars, and the woman that was the pastry chef ahead of me was pregnant, and she was leaving. So I had nine months to convince Jeremiah Tower that that he needed to give me the job, and God bless him. He said, sure, give it a try. And, you know, back then, people really – Food reviewers, customers, everyone, they really weren't paying attention to desserts that much. It was more kind of they were paying attention to the the, the fish and the produce because people were getting excited about that because it was all really new. And so you could p- really put a pastry chef that didn't have any pastry experience um, as the pastry chef of a really well-known a restaurant at Stars was at that time in 1977, 1987. It opened in 1984, and um, where because it was all kind of under the radar, and all the learning that I did was very kind of trial and error, and. You know, I'd get get up really early in the morning so I could remake everything if I had to. So by the time five thirty rolled around and we opened for dinner, I had something you know to show for it. But nowadays, you couldn't, you could never take a high restaurant of that caliber and just put somebody on there that didn't have pastry experience. I mean, it would just be, it wouldn't be fair to the person, it wouldn't be fair to the restaurant. And so you really need the fundamental, you know, training. And I, that's what I think is really important about a culinary education. You know, wherever you go to school, if it's a community college, if it's the ICC or whatever, is that it really gives you the fundamental techniques that you need to then, you know... Go into the workplace, so you're, um, so you, you have at least an understanding, so then you can learn and take it from there, because it's always everyday learning.
0: So uh, how has how have the desserts changed in yeah. 20 years?
1: The desserts, it's interesting, because in the very beginning, when I started, it was always very, everything was very French oriented, and there were souffles, and they were tarts, and they were very, it was very classical French. And then the whole American thing, the whole American regional food kicked in. And we start. People started doing like angel food cake and you know um, short cakes and things like that. And it went. And it swung, the pendulum swung so far the other way of just doing crisps and pies and things like that. And you know people were just loved it because it was full of flavor and it was there. And then after that kind of wore off for a while, um, a lot of the pastry chefs in the United States got into a very architectural kind of contrived. Um, uh, stage where everything was very, very ornate, and what was interesting too is that you know everybody kind of all the pastry chefs went to from one thing to the other. A lot of them they were architectural before that they were just really American down home, but now what's happened in the last ten years is. There's so many different styles out there and what's great about it is everyone's doing their own style like I have my style they're just more American and Wait, then, well how do you describe your style um, I would I always call my style kind of simple but elegant it's all mm. flavor driven Um mm-hmm you get the real wow when you take a bite of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you want it to be visually appealing. But it's kind mm-hmm. of like the cla- I always look at it as it's kind of like the classic suit a woman has on or mm-hmm. a man has on. And you look at it and you go, oh, that's beautiful. It's got nice lines to it. And then you kind of look at it closer and you take a bite. And it's like, okay, I get it now. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I get it now. So
0: So everybody's listening to this, which of your cookbooks Do you think If they're going to start out With your desserts Which one should they start with
1: Well I think it depends If you're a home baker I would say um, The Fearless Baker Because it was written for cooks who don't bake and are, uh, have fear of it. The fir- We were first going to call it the terrified baker, but we didn't <laughs> think that was a- as empowering as fearless baker. But I think it also if you're in the business, I think I would actually go back to Stars Desserts, because when I wrote that book, I was actually amazed when it came out how many savory chefs came to me and said, you know, I'm in charge of the desserts at the restaurant, and I, re- and I use your recipes as kind of building blocks to create things on my own. Like, I'll give it my own twist. I'll make your gingerbread, because it's a great gingerbread recipe but then I'll add you know this cream to it or that fruit to it and I'll turn it into something totally of my own and to me that was really fun because I think that's even though pastry does work so much on recipes when people come to me and say well they I took it and they changed it I hope you don't mind I said I'm thrilled you changed it because there's so many different things that you can do and it just gives it a whole new life and a whole new creative You know, input and outlook on it that it takes it in a completely different direction.
0: I know our chefs are always going to the students, taste, taste, taste. You have to taste as you go along. If you're a pastry chef tasting all day, what does that do to your mouth, the sugar? I mean, can you taste, taste, taste all day as a pastry chef? Well, one, the
1: sugar does kind of, you do have to wash your palate out with a good steak or something like that in between. (laughs) But I think there are two levels of, um, when you're testing a dessert and you're creating a dessert, there's a lot of tasting that goes on. But the good thing about like, if you are developing a cake recipe, and once you get it going and you put it on the menu, you don't have to taste it every day because you know if it came out of the oven, it looks okay, you did it right. But the things that you always have to taste are the balance of, of all the things on the plate. And fruit is a perfect example. You know, strawberries aren't the same. Mm-hmm. Apple, Even apples, which you are available mm-hmm. all year round, you know, you get a strawberry in the middle of the summer. And you eat it, and you don 't need any sugar on it at all mm-hmm. you don 't have to do anything to it mm-hmm. where if you get one earlier in the year and the sun hasn 't you know been able to kiss it so much, then you need to add a little bit of um, sugar to it and you know and it is about tasting. I think a lot of pastry chefs don 't taste their food enough they 're going more by the recipe, and mm-hmm. you know whenever I would take a um, dessert to Mark in my early years Mark Franz who's the chef I've worked with for 25 years I'd say well you taste this and give me my opinion give me your opinion and he'd always say salt and acid salt and acid and so mm. people use lemon juice and salt in savory cooking but it's got such a fundamental role in baking too especially if you put that little bit on strawberries or apples when you're mm. sautéing them in a pan it really helps draw out the flavor
0: Ooh, it sounds so good <laughs> uh, okay well we're going to take a little break here and we'll come back and talk some more Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome back. We're on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and this is Dorothy can Hamilton with Chef Story. And today we have East Coast, West Coast, super pastry chef Emily Lucchetti with us. And Emily, we've been talking about a lot of things from uh, influences, uh, how pastry chefs taste, and we were talking about sugar in the mouth. And uh, I kind of want to ask you about sugar itself. It's gotten such a bad rap. And, uh, you know, in, you go to France and you don't see this big obese, obese people, and you see the most extraordinary pastry shops, and they are eating them, and they're eating the baguettes and the bread. Um, and and now, you know, we're, we're seeing policies where people want to take the sugar out of everything. Do you have an opinion on this? What's, what's going on? God.
1: Well, you know, I think we do have a real weight problem in the United States. There is a real obesity problem, but I kind of look at it from a more um moderation point of view, and I also look at it as it's not gonna the sugar isn't gonna disappear so yes, you know, and I think the thing too with um, pastry chefs is that I won't. If you look at pastry chefs, first of all, across the country as a a general group, the majority of them are pretty healthy. And actually, I think if you compared them, I haven't done a scientific study on this, but my gut is, after... Traveling all over the world As long The country As long as I have Doing food Is that Actually pastry chefs Are in better shape And take better care Of themselves Than savory chefs do Really And I think Some of that is Is when you're In a pastry department And you're working all day You know that you can't Just eat the sugar And uh, you know Whatever's around all day You need some nutrition Or else you're going to Crash and burn At three o'clock And you have to work You know Into into the evening So I think You know We've kind of Learned that you It's not You can't live all by sugar You know mm-hmm. And so Um I have often have asked, well, how can you be so healthy when you're around desserts all the time? It's like, well, first of all, you don't have a devil's food cake for dinner every single night. You know, we I only have dessert if we have company over, or if I'm testing something, or you know, we're going out to a restaurant. It's not something you know. that's we have all the time. You know, and that being said, it is about you know healthy eating, and you know I'm all for every program that says we have to eat more fresh vegetables, we have to eat more lean meats, we have to eat more whole grains. I believe in that a hundred percent, because that's the way I. I I live my life but at the same time i think we're a little bit naive to think that people are just going to not eat sugar anymore and i also think from an emotional standpoint i don't want to get to that point i don't want to get to point one because no one will want my services as a pastry chef <laughs> then i'd be out of a job but also i think that there's an emotional reward and a celebration thing that comes you know from eating a nice piece of cake for a birthday or whatever so i really think that it's all we need to get the sugar out of the processed food, we need to have you know people stop eating so dr- stop drinking so much soda because of the amount of sugar and the calories that are in that. But if you eat a healthy diet of you know the whole grains, the vegetables, and you save the desserts for the um, you know the special occasions and you know the cookie, the, the 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 piece of cake, and you don't have it something that's that's twice a day or even once a day. I think that there's a real place for it, you know, and I I feel. You know, I you know when they uh, when they say, "Oh, we're going to take the bake sales," you know, more no more bake sales because it's adding to the obesity problem. Well, that's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. One, you know, it's to me whenever I drive by bake sale, I buy everything because I want to support the young kids that are doing <laughs> right. doing the bake sale. But I think it's it's all about understanding what you can put in and out of your body. And it's it's kind of like finances for me. Is you know if. You only have $50 in the bank. You don't go and buy the $100 sweater. You know, you just don't do it. And I know a lot of people do. And that's why everybody has credit card debt. Well, they have to really kind of look at it the same. You have to look at the number of calories you have, how you want to, you know, space them out, what you want to do, and have a healthy life. And you can honestly do both. And I think that comes from... A discipline, and I think that a lot of Americans don't like to instow too much discipline. When they want that cake, they want it now, mm-hmm. and it's also um, they have to be. A little bit thinking more of the future and not just of, of today. And I think that's another thing sometimes that, you know, they're thinking, oh, I want, again, I want the cake today and, you know, I'm going to have cake again tomorrow. Well, if you have cake today, don't have it tomorrow. Right. You know, it's, it's, on the one hand, I think it's, it's so simple mm-hmm. that people are trying to make the answers too complicated when it's really, it's all about self, it's about responsibility, it's about self responsibility. And, you know, it's like the amount of money that's being, um, Channeled into creating a uh, some a, you know some kind of pill that you can take so you can eat all the cake that you want. Well, mm. take that money and use it for so many other important um, you know health concerns. Getting vegetables in grocery stores and where people don't have them, that kind of thing, mm. and just rechannel that money and just get people to be more responsible.
0: Well, you know you're known as a pastry chef for having huge flavor in your desserts. And uh, so one of my questions has been, uh, a lot of people look at quantity, like they're not, they don't feel full. And I think some of these uh, diets or whatever, they fill you with these calories that don't make you feel full. And in your brain, you need to have fat in your mouth. You need to have a a little sugar. And if you don't have it, you'll never be satisfied. So are there some flavor bombs that... uh, you know, high quality. Some people say, just take a little high yeah. quality piece well, of chocolate. Yeah. Or the, the
1: perfect example of that is, and this would happen to me too, is if you take like a commercial candy bar, and you eat it, you would have to eat. You have to eat like the whole thing or two of them to be satiated and really feel like you got your sugar fixed. Why? Why? Because it's all sugar, and it's it's most of it's sugar, and not a not as Not enough of it is either chocolate or um, flavor-driven. And I think what happens when people make desserts too sweet is it masks their flavor. It hides it. And so it kind of makes it a more neutral platform where it doesn't have any real highs, and so you don't get that chocolate intensity. Even like you make a cake with pecans, if it's got too much sugar in it, it doesn't taste pecan enough. You know, you want that first bite to be full of pecan and full of flavor. And, you know, and people will say, well, your desserts are, you know, people say to me, I don't like desserts, but your desserts aren't too s- sweet, and they're good. I go, you've been eating, there's too much sugar in a lot of the desserts. And it's not just from a sugar consumption standpoint, but it's also a flavor, um, you know, standpoint.
0: How does fat play in that? You know, how does sugar play in your mouth, and how does yeah. fat play in well, your Well,
1: sugar mouth? is like a vehicle for fat, really, when you think about the creaming of the sugar and things like that. Not only is it a vehicle, it adds adds um, texture and it also it does it does add flavor but you know if you go back to that um, chocolate candy bar where you have to have a whole you know eight ounce candy bar to feel full where if you take some bittersweet chocolate or you know a 60 percent you'll have a couple bites and you'll feel full because there because it's it's got so much more intensity to it and I think that's what people are. They're kind of really eating, you know, the wrong thing. And also they're eating without thinking about it. It's like how you can sit down and eat like a bag of chips and, you know, because you're watching TV or something and then you look at the bag and you go, oh my God, that's empty and I don't remember eating any of it. So I think it's being more focused on when you are eating something, you mm. know, focusing on its pleasure mm. and um, really concentrating on it so then you'll know that you ate it and you'll remember you ate it and you get the pleasure out of
0: it. How important is it to bake with your kids? You know, we're told everybody should cook with their kids. And I remember when my wonderful daughter Olivia was young... She loved those Duncan Hine Boxes yep. and opened them up and I thought that was great Because you know what you don't have to read it actually Has the graphics yeah. on the back and At five she was making cakes yeah. And I think that that spurred her Into the kitchen I mean they're not going to do You know sauteed And I think It's you, a
1: great start you know yeah. I don't poo poo Anything you know I really don't I think it's A great start I think you want to really Do anything that would get you know kids In the kitchen and I think the other thing too that When it comes to desserts in general I think if kids especially actually spent some time making the desserts then they would appreciate it more I remember when I was a kid and I would make something and my brothers would just grab some and I'm and they would just like wolf it down I go wait a second I spent a half an hour making that you have to appreciate that more it's not like you have to you know thank me 10,000 times but don't just wolf it down and go for that sugar intense rush and not appreciate what you're doing so i think if if kids were more a part of the process of baking and realize the Art and craft of it um, Mm -hmm. Then I think you have A better um, appreciation for it And a better respect for it Because you know When you bake There are two levels Of satisfaction you get One is you're creating Something with your hands That you have It's very concrete It's on the table It's like I made this tart I created it And then the other level Of satisfaction Is giving it to other people And sharing that So their lives are You know Enriched And they're happy You know Campers after eating it So I think that um, What happens with the cookies That are at the market Or the fast food store People buy them, and they consume them, and within five minutes the experience is over, but it's not lasting. Like, if I go to a restaurant and I have a really good dessert, the next day I'm still thinking about it. But when do you think about, you know, that other, that cookie or something that you just bought at the mini mart and you just shoved in your face and
0: you know it has no aftertaste has no aftertaste it's like a great wine or great food you put it in your mouth and you can't eat it quickly because it's so full of flavor and once you swallow it you get other other flavors flavors. and then you have the memory of it that's right and if you go and get some commercial thing that just has a sugar pop you just want more the sugar makes you addicted addicted to it so well um so just let's uh let's get your take on all of these uh food network uh shows that you know feature pastries do you think do you think they're good does it distort what Pastry chefs really do, or is it a really good insight to how hard it is? I, you, know, you know, got I, cupcakes. To- yeah, yeah.
1: I, I think actually, it's been a, a really good thing overall because I think it's really brought an awareness to different types of pastry and and the skill sets that are involved. I think you know, people. There's been enough reality shows and people and, and shows on PBS, and there's so much information about food out there that the customer, the consumer, whoever watches TV, is able to discern and differentiate between this is a reality kind of entertainment cooking show versus this is this is what it takes to actually hone your craft and, and, and do your job. So I think in that regard, I think it's been really good. Um, the one thing I worry, though, about is I see when a lot of the um, kids come to me and they want jobs, or they all kind of want to work in the baking business now, and they want to work in de- decorating a cake or something like that, which I think is a great thing to be in, but I think when the younger some of the younger kids come in and they can be a little bit skewed because everybody wants the instant so many people now the younger kids they want to want the instant fame of it and if you're going to be in this profession you want to be a a baker or a pastry chef or even a chef you have to love it every single day when you get up in the morning and you want to go to work and do it every day you don't just do it for the awards you don't just do it for the television appearances you do it because you want to get up in the morning you want to cook and you want to give that food to other people to make them
0: happy. That says it all. Before we close, I've got a couple of questions. What's the name of your blog?
1: Actually, it's um, the Emily um, has a blog. It's Emily But San Francisco Chronicle has a great version of the, the newspaper. has a great version of their um, newspaper online. It's called Inside Scoop. SF.com and they have kind of all the Bay Area happenings in food and they have A group of um, chefs that uh, Once a week or so write about different Things about food so I'm included In that it's on the voices tab so If you click on that you'll see my Blogs and also a lot of really interesting Blogs from other chefs from the Bay Area
0: Okay and last Question out of all the Utensils you have in your Kitchen which one do you Covet the most my mini Offset spatula What is a mini (laughs) (laughs) offset (laughs) spatula? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's kind
1: of like a long, narrow um, metal spatula like you'd use to ice a cake. But offset means that it's flat and then it goes up a little bit. So when you're using it to frost a cake, your hand is away from the frosting and everything like that. So you get in there. You can get in there. And traditionally, they're like nine inches. But they make one that's like four inches. And you can get them at any cookware shop. shop and they're four inches. And they're great for, like, frosting the side of a cake or getting spreading batter out in, in a nine-inch pan or... Spreading jam on toast It's one of those things That's a really universal Universal tool
0: That was so immediate <laughs> I can't wait to run out And buy, <laughs> one. buy one Okay well I have to thank you Emily Lucchetti is just An extraordinary person And, and a very very talented chef And it's just been a pleasure Speaking thank to you Thank you it's today. been great being here Well thank you It's heritageradionetwork.org And this is Dorothy Can Hamilton And Chef Story saying See you next week or not see you <laughs> hear you. you thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network
1: you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows you can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.